Welcome to the Bald Move TV podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for all the TV. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And uh, Aaron's got a lot of stuff he wants to talk about this week. It's kind of a busy week, um, just for television news that I'm interested in, and also for some stuff I've been watching. I don't know how, how much time we'll have to get to all of it. First thing I want to talk about, we both saw Netflix's Spoiler Vault. Sure. So if you're not familiar with this, and I'll post a link in the show notes, Netflix, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, posted this thing where you could go to a page, and it looks like there's a big steel door with a big red button on it. It says, press to be spoiled. You push that button, the steel door slide, and it goes into the Netflix archive and shows you between a 10 and 30 second clip of just a massive spoiler. Like, it's going to spoil Kaiser Soze in the usual suspects. It's going to Yeah, it's not the it's not a single spoiler from like the same thing over no. and over again or like a supercut or anything. It is a random it is a spoiler from a random film or TV show or something. Uh another real example that I think it's fairly safe to say is Ginny Gump dying in Forrest okay. Gump. Another similar magnitude would be so Darth Vader. Soylent Green is people. Soylent Green is people. Yeah. There's a lot of, and someone said that there's only like 25 before they start repeating. I don't know that that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I spent a good bit of time and saw some repeats, but uh, also it's like just really some weird stuff, like a fourth season from some random WB episode, you know, the series on witchcraft yeah. or something, which I had no. My question is, you know, with so many people being kind of spoiler phobes, mm-hmm. what is Netflix's game here? Why are they doing this? Oh, I think it's clear when you look at kind of the other half of this experiment, which so, is... So talk about the other half, because I've, I've completely ignored that piece. Uh, you go into this other section of the website where you're basically helping them populate their database of what is and isn't a spoiler by being presented with a question... Um, or or a, a piece of information from a film, like mm-hmm. a line that says, uh, I don't even know how you would do it with Soylent Green. Like, it wouldn't actually be Soylent Green as people, but it would be something close um, that, like, hints at what movie it is and hints at the spoiler itself. It's super itself. cryptic to where if you, if you knew what... If you knew what the movie was, you mm-hmm. would understand what they're talking about, but if you yeah. didn't, you'd have no idea. I'm trying to think what would be... Uh, Charles Heston finds out the horrifying recipe for a snack, a mass-produced <laughs> snack. Yes. That would yeah. be a good example. Then you would know exactly what they're talking about, Soil and Green. Um, and then it asks you to say, is this, a, is this spoiler okay to talk about? Yeah. Yes or no? Bas- is basically, is it old enough to where everyone should have – or is it relevant it enough? Is something, it pop culturally ingrained The two, the two buttons are um, too soon and old yeah. hat. Yeah, but it's not – necessarily a recency thing for me at least when i'm doing it when i'm Mm. doing it i'm like does enough of pop culture know about this to make it not really a spoiler anymore sure that's a good point like obviously darth vader luke's father yeah that is the hoariest of spoiler like i'm sorry yeah if if, if you're just like no well Uh you know there's another spoiler for you a lot of newborn infants everywhere crying out (laughs) and suddenly silenced (laughs) So okay, you you say it's obvious. What the hell are they doing? But you're, uh, it's I obvious think what, what they're, they're doing. doing is they're 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 deciding what spoilers to show you in that spoiler that random spoiler section. Okay, I think that's what they're doing. 
But why are they doing the spoiler section at all? I don't know. Because I, I, I don't. The know. other thing is one of the one of the spoilers specifically around Breaking Bad is Major League, and it's from the final season, which is just now a year old. Yeah, I feel like that would too be soon. way too soon. Yet it's it's on there. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I they're they warn you a couple of times. You sure, have to click a couple buttons to yeah. get into that. So I think you know if they're showing. The old spoilers, those aren't spoilers, and that doesn't apply to that section. I think they're actually taking the spoileriest of spoilers, the ones that people click too soon on, and showing those. See, I don't... I wonder if there's not a little bit more a cultural experiment, because right like right now there's this extreme respect for people's not spoiling people, you know? And it's like... Yeah one of the fucking worst first world things you can do to someone mm-hmm. is just drop a massive spoiler without context when you know that they're watching it. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's like, you know, it can get to absurd levels. Like uh, I remember, I think in the third season of Portlandia, they had like an illustration of a dinner party where oh, every yeah, single yeah. topic of discussion was like, spoiler. No, I'm not there yet. No, no. And yeah. it's like some people, I feel like take it too far. Well, that's super interesting that you bring up that scene from Portlandia because that is the problem with Netflix wrapped up. And this is what I'm and thinking. presented to you with a bow. Like I've seen episodes one, two and three. You've seen episode eight. She's seen episode six. How do we even have a conversation? I, I wonder if this is Netflix testing out that cultural assumption. People say yeah. that, oh, I can't t- stand spoilers and it's all oh, you've ruined it for me. But when push comes to shove, what do people actually do? Because you're right. This is really uh, wrapped up in their buffet model, you know? Sure. Uh, if, if you're I, – and, and I think it's fascinating because I, I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Like – I feel like if a spoiler is such that it ruins a movie for me, then the movie wasn't that good. Because my favorite uh, movies and my favorite things, I like to watch multiple times. Why do I like to do that? Yeah, I think there's something about the original experience being unspoiled. Certainly. That is, I mean, once you're spoiled, you can't get that experience. Sure. You lose the opportunity for that. So, like, I'm not going to spoil this, but The Red Wedding, for instance was massively spoiled for me. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly what was coming. Uh, it wasn't shocking It's at arguable all when that it using that term is a spoiler in itself. I, I disagree. Okay. That, I, that's like saying that Charlton Heston movie... I don't really give a shit. It was with, two uh, seasons ago. The crazy yeah. recipe. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I don't really give a shit because it was two seasons ago. I was spoiled massively for it. That's what led me to reading Game of Thrones because I was just minding yeah, yeah. my own business and I saw someone... You know, toss off that term, and then someone like, explained it. it, and it's like, "Fuck, well, might as well read the books." <laughs> yeah, uh, but that ruined, you know, a good chunk of my enjoyment of that scene. Okay, so interesting because I don't, I don't know that it did for me, um, and I just wonder if this is a, a again, like I said, a, a laboratory experiment where they're like, "You say that you are this phobia of spoilers. We're actually going to put it to the test. We're going to see mm-hmm. whether or not you really." Uh, mean that, and we're going to do it in a way that we can precisely measure. Yeah, it's interesting because they only present this, they only develop this feature if they disbelieve the idea that spoilers are a a big problem for people in the first place, right? Because if you think that they're a big problem for people, you don't put the development effort into building something you think people won't use. Right. Like, specifically will avoid. Right. Uh, 
so they probably have the opinion that spoilers aren't that big a deal. What they also could be doing is using it for their marketing. Like how much of the shows that we have can we get away with showing in our previews for other Ooh. shows? Kind of like HBO Go yeah. does where they have you know promos for their other shows. There's all sorts of ways. Netflix is I, I they are data whores in the sure. most positive way. They sure. they base like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black their original shows on what people are watching. Mm-hmm. Um, they have empirical data to say these would probably be popular. So I think they have a myriad of ways that they could use this data. I think there's one other possible potential reason they're doing this, which is to surface some of their deeper content. Because there was a couple, I think there's two or three scenes hmm. without context. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And my girlfriend and I were watching this uh, on the couch. We're like, we want to jot that down and kind of check into that. Or I would okay. ne- Those things would yeah. never have been on my radar elsewise. elsewise. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, and I feel like, you know, the Breaking Bad spoiler, that thing was so compelling that if I had managed to avoid watching Breaking Bad at this point, I'd have been like, whoa, shit, I need to see that. I wonder so, if maybe they're preparing for like a second screen experience as well. Mm. I don't know. There's so many ways they could use this. But it is a thing. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes if you want to. But I, again, I can't stress enough. I did this on Facebook, and like, you know, 77 people liked it. There was 50 some comments, and there's three or four people like, I don't know why I clicked on this. Yeah. I wish I hadn't. Yep. So uh, be warned, you know, they it's warn you and it's it's addictive too. like you're mm-hmm. going to get like the first three will be like, oh, OK, well, I knew about Ginny Gump and uh, I knew or about I've never Kaiser. heard of any of these. Right, right. Yeah. Or these and like but then you'll find one that's just like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have seen that. So, yeah, like a show you wanted to watch, but, but hadn't got around to super clever. Uh, second thing I want to talk about is true detective casting slash news. I. Okay. It, it came across that it was confirmed, confirmed, confirmed that Colin Farrell and Vince Vaughn were locked up in two of the lead roles for True Detective. Oh and boy. that led me to just Weep. spending a whole afternoon finding as much as I could about True Detective. And there's a surprising amount of stuff in there. Yesterday, yeah. it was confirmed that Rachel McAdams is going to be cast as the female lead. Okay. Now, one thing. And I guess Taylor Kitsch is another guy that's a mention for the, you know, that's like all but confirmed, I guess, for the fourth lead. I don't even know who that is. Yeah, I mean, I'd heard of him. Um, I wasn't sure exactly. I I mean, I know he was in Battleship. He's in Friday Night Lights. Uh, He's just some young kind of hot dude. All right. Uh I don't. I don't know what to believe here. There are so many rumors going around right now. I have heard. Oh, he was uh, John Carter from John Carter. <laughs> okay, I don't think I ever saw that. Yeah, um, not many people did. <laughs> Nathan on Twitter said that Ellen Page and Kate Mara are for True Detective, and I have not heard that anywhere. Hmm. Um, the women you that- said Rachel McAdams. I. The, guess I saw that on news sites and stuff. The women that I've heard attached are Elizabeth Moss, long time ago, yeah. Peggy, you know Peggy Olson from Mad Men. Uh, obviously, I think she would be fantastic. Sure, she's just a fantastic actress. Uh, Rosario Dawson, okay, was was rumored to be attached to it. I I love Rosario Dawson. Yep. Uh, she can play a lot of different things. Uh, Jessica Biel, I do not see at all. Uh, no, you're not a Total Recall fan. 
Oh yeah, but what, <laughs> I didn't like Total Recall. I was gonna it was, say it was a ridiculous film, but yeah, I don't mean like did that really sell you on? But Jessica that was Beale? both of them, right? Because I mean, you see them back as a pair, Colin Farrell and Jessica Beale together sure, again sure. in one long action scene. Holy sure. shit! It's True Detective season two, people. I mean, I know she's Justin Timberlake's mirror, but I think you need a little bit more. Kira Knightley was also attached. I thought uh, Kira Knightley would be very interesting. Um, did you see the movie Domino? No. You know, so she plays this um, you know, supermodel slash bounty hunter in that, and she's really tough and that oh, kind of... Oh, yeah. Well, that's a stereotype. Yeah. It's yeah, just a cliche at this point, the supermodel bounty hunter. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I think, one of the annoying stereotypes where you got the elf and pixie who also is a total ass kicker. Sure. It's becoming a stereotype. Like River right? Tam... Yeah, you know, she, and taken to like the nth degree in Kick-Ass, where the little girl is sure the badass. I mean, it's it's kind of can be cool if you do it in the campy way. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know Michelle Forbes? No. Does she own the magazine? No. Uh, she played Ensign Ro Lauren, like the first Bajoran we ever oh, met in the Next Jesus. Generation. And she's she's done a lot of other things. Uh, the most recent thing I've seen her in, I think she's in season two of True Blood. She played the main ad. She was in The Killing. Um, I think that she huh. especially is very good at playing kind of this aloof, dark, mysterious, but she can also play, you know, mischievous as well. I yeah. think she'd be good. Interesting. Okay. But I think we get Rachel McAdams. I say Rachel McAdams. First thing you think of is Mean Girls. Second thing you think of. Dunno. Okay. Uh, I know she's in Wedding Crashers. She's in A Family oh, Stone. Yeah, yeah. Okay. She was in, uh, what's the last thing? Oh, Time Top, Traveler's Wife. Yeah, she was pretty good in that. Uh, and I say pretty good. She was she was good in that. All right. Well, I've got, I found a character, like a, a one or two line description of the characters uh, that these people are going to uh, play. And I wonder if this will make us feel better slash worse about it. Uh, Ray Velcoro who is going to be played by Vince Vaughn, a compromise... Whoa, whoa. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the female leads. We need to talk about these fucking male leads, man. Right. Colin Um, Farrell and Vince Vaughn. Oh, God. Yeah, I think I might have... (laughs) Okay, this is by by Colin Farrell. Ray Velcoro, a compromised detective whose allegiances are torn between his masters and a corrupt police department and the mobster who owns him. Uh, This Hmm. is a much... This is a lot like... It sounds like the... um, you know, the Marco Ruiz detect, uh, character from The Bridge. Yeah. Uh, Colin Farrell. You know, I think Colin Farrell's fine. I've seen him in a lot of goofy stuff. Yep. Uh, I've seen him in stuff like The Recruit, though, where he's pretty good. Right. Um, but, but he has a surprising range. Like, when I saw him in, like, Phone Booth and The Recruit, I was like, okay, he can do action, like, serious drama action stuff. Super expressive face. But then you go to stuff like Horrible Bosses. Sure. Where he's just playing these outrageous characters, and I, he's got a lot of range. Uh, indeed. Uh, Frank Semyon, a career criminal in danger of losing his empire when his move into legitimate enterprise is upended by the murder of a business partner to be played by Vince Vaughn. I'm guessing that this is the mobster that owns the previous detective? Uh-huh. So they're they're going, they're trying to up their game from... Episode four, where they did that one long shot. Now they're going to do a whole episode as one long sentence. <laughs> Just fast talking 90 guy sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like Vince Vaughn is the only one I'm super worried about. I'm kind of surprised Rachel McAdams. Uh, I like her, but 
I don't know if she fits the true detective mold. Honestly, don't know what the true detective mold is. Right? That's the real question. Uh, which we'll talk about here in a bit. Um, one thing that uh, when I posted this on Facebook, a lot of people were commenting and mentioning stuff that they saw Vaughn in that they thought was really good. Like one uh, Nicole F. said, uh, you should check him out in Domestic Disturbance opposite of John Travolta. That's the first movie I ever saw him in, and I thought he was a great villain. Uh, Kim L. said, I'm surprised no one mentioned Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates. Have you seen the Psycho remake? I haven't, no. So I wonder if – I kind of heard that the Psycho remake was terrible, but you often get that when someone remakes a classic that doesn't really need to be remade. Sure. Uh, and then uh, Jonathan C. said, you should check out the movie Clay Pigeons. It's a bit sinister, but the, he also has a weird charm in there as well. Uh, so I guess if, if, you're, if you're concerned about Vince Vaughn, there's your homework assignment. Find out uh, Clay Pigeons, uh, check him out in Psycho, check him out in Domestic Disturbance and see – because the oh, I yeah, can't... I I don't like Vince Vaughn as a human being. Yeah, um, there's there's like a base level kind of creepy vibe I get from him. Um, but and and I also have only really seen him in comedies, so it's hard for me to judge how he's going to hold up dramatically. Not seeing these three movies that they've mentioned, my yeah. peak Vince Vaughn is Vince Vaughn and Swingers. Okay, he's really good. But that does not fit what I conceive True Detective at all. And then I've yeah. also seen him in, like, you know, uh, Wedding Crashers and Dodgeball and all that other crap where it's like yeah. what and, – and he's kind of the, – the more I see him, the more he's kind of just like lazy Vince Vaughn. Yep. You yep. know, it's like that's that's kind of what you get. It's kind of the same way that uh, Harrison Ford is kind of just plays Harrison Ford now. He doesn't give a <laughs> fuck about what he's supposed to be doing. Al Pacino oh, doesn't give God. a shit. He's just going to be Al Pacino. Yeah. Um. I just that's the one that's got me worried the most. Yeah, maybe he's trying to change his image. Maybe he's refocusing, getting serious, trying to do some cool dramatic stuff now. Jake M on Facebook said, "I'm less concerned with Colin or Vaughn, but more concerned with Justin Lin directing the first two episodes." I don't know who that is. Justin Lin is the director of the last three uh, Fast and Furiouses. Oh Jesus. Does that really scare you though? Yeah, yeah. I'm of the opinion that Fast and Furious the last couple ones are actually kind of awesome. They're awesome, but I don't know that I want True Detective to be awesome. You know, mm -hmm. like I want it to be interesting and I want it to be kind of kind of quiet. And Fast and Furious is not any of that. Hmm. Uh, some... At least that's my expectation given season one. I don't I don't know what to expect in season two. There was a guy in on Grantland, I think it was Alex Papademus, that was talking about this very thing, about Justin Lin and um, you know people being concerned about it. And he said, while he's perhaps best known for directing several of the Fast and Furious films, I believe a more apt touchstone for his work is the 2002 directorial debut, Better Luck Tomorrow, which focuses on a group of Asian-American friends in Los Angeles who become involved in crime, drugs, and a general lifestyle of excess. It's a bracing mm -hmm. film. One that feels hyperkinetic and pyrotechnic, even without the future Lin trademarks, such as car chases, blowing shit up, etc. Another thing I'll say about Lin is he implicitly understands the collective imagination's look and feel of California. It's a mixture of glitz and sleaze, shine and grime, and while the films he has directed have largely been popcorn fare, there's an atmosphere to his films that is intoxicating. Um, and and that is relevant because Nick Pizzolato, I think that's how you pronounce his name, is said that uh, Pizzolatto has said that he's setting this in Southern California. Hmm, okay. And not like the L.A. parts, 
like the outside LA parts, more sure, rural deserty. Yeah, right. Okay. So I and, and the one thing that concerns me about True Detective because the first season was so amazing because it had one writer, had one director, they had a clear vision, they stuck to it, and it was really great plus it was something i hadn't quite seen before i mean it's kind of a really interesting experiment the way it worked that way you've already got you know this guy's turning this thing around in less than a year i don't know how long he polished true detective i presume he had years uh but then he is going to turn around in less than a year and now you're splitting it up amongst x many directors do you think that that has a potential of losing some of the specialness that season one had I think it definitely has the potential to do that. Um, it's it's harder. Like, I I don't know. I mean, it depends on how cohesive of a series you're actually looking for. But it's you know the director position in in filmmaking is a very important one. They are the vision, and if Nick Pizzolatto um, is not, is he writing all of this at least? Uh yes. Or does he have as a far, team of writers? As far as I know, he's writing the whole thing. I don't know. It takes it takes a lot of skill to for two or more directors to have the same kind of get their visions in line with each other. And I'm I'm a little more scared about that uh than I was about season one. So I I don't know. I, I'm I'm worried on all sides. Actors, uh setting not being as interesting. You know, multiple directors and writers and all that stuff. It does have a potential to be kind of like House of Cards where David Fincher came in and directed the first two, I think, and kind of set the visual look of it. Yeah, or Boardwalk Empire. Same, uh, yeah, same same deal. And then everybody else kind of goes along with that style and it feels pretty fairly cohesive. Yeah, and I hope that's what happens. Um, that's For, just harder to pull off. Yeah, I don't know. I'm... I'm super worried. I mean, I don't know why, because if season two True Detective sucks, it doesn't take anything away from the first season. No, but you you know, you want more of what you got sure. in season one. So. Sure. Um but uh the other thing I I I got kind of got sa- sidetracked is the third character, the Rachel McAdams character, uh is Annie Bazaridis. A tough, no-nonsense Monterey sheriff with troubled whose troubled upbringing has driven her to gambling and alcohol. Um, and again, I don't know if Rachel McAdams is confirmed, confirmed or what, but that's like, she's a lot more confirmed than she was 24 hours ago. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know. I mean, I don't know that she can play that, but then I, ne- then again, I never saw Elizabeth Shue playing the character she does in leaving Las Vegas until I actually saw leaving Las Vegas mm-hmm. and want to kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Elizabeth Shue, like depressive, suicidal, dis- destructive, dark i just you know she was adventures of babysitting and she was the eye candy and the saint and you know one of my first teenage crushes and so you just never know sure that's why acting is acting right (laughs) indeed um anything else you want to say about true detective before um they do so it initially was rumored as as like the the week after the season ended i think we talked about this on the wrap-up cast Nick Pizzolatto said that it was going to explore the uh, surprisingly occult backgrounds of the American railway system. And uh, since then, 
he's revised it and says it's going to be more about uh, the the dealings of the highways, like the real estate dealings and the business dealings and the and and the business of making the highways in Southern California. And may, people have speculated maybe Route sixty six plays a big part of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's going to begin with a murder a murderer being found uh, with a satanic symbol carved on his chest. <laughs> What does that have to do with highways? Come on. I well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess it has. It'd be like if someone said, you know, a satanic cult around a rural school system or around the faith-based school system in Louisiana. You'd be like, what? But that is True Detective, season one. What is True Detective? What is True Detective going to be? Is it going to be? A fantasy series where the occult is kind of hamstrung in or kind of wedged into different scenarios. Is that what True Detective is going to be? Is True Detective going to be something very different every season? Like, because the occult is firmly planted in season one. Sure. If you now take that and you say, okay, building the highways had nothing to do with the occult. Building railroads had nothing to do with the occult, but we're going to put it in there, and that'll make that more interesting. Uh, I don't know that... I was that is what I was on board for, like historical, like Did, so, so, like the uh, revisionist Nazi history type stuff. So the political connectedness of the occult stuff going on in Louisiana did not float your boat. No, it kind of did because Louisiana has a little bit of that kind of weird, like voodoo doctor yeah. sort of rep feel to it. Sure. Like this is very like spiritual side to the city itself. Whereas Southern California doesn't feel that at all, right? Hmm. I don't know. It says uh, another quote I found in the rap says uh, it's uh, it's a, it's about a corrupt California city manager who's found brutally murdered amidst a potentially groundbreaking transportation deal that would forever change freeway gridlock in the state. Uh, it's going to feature three police officers coming from different cities and branches of government who must finger the culprit. Okay, that doesn't say anything about the occult. Well, but the the uh, brutal murder involves the city manager is found with a satanic symbol etched on his chest. That's okay. where the occult comes in. Yeah. So I guess I don't understand what, what you mean Satan about... What does have to do with building the what? highways in California? What does the Yellow King have to do with faith-based schools in Louisiana? But that was, a, that was like a purely uh, fantastical story. That was a fiction now we're talking about maybe Route sixty six was originally Route six six six. Oh Jesus! And Vince Vaughn saved the day at the yep. last moment. I could totally see by that. winging a volleyball at some dude's All head. Right, I'm back in. I'm back. <laughs> you can dodge a highway. You can dodge a ball. Um, so that's the kind of true detective news. I'd love to hear what people think about this. Uh, you can email us at tv at baldmove dot com. One in and a couple of recommendations that uh, I've consumed in the last couple couple days. This weekend, the Jay-Z and Beyonce on the run tour, that's something that's been going on all summer long. HBO had like a two and a half hour. It was a whole concert from the beginning to the end. Yeah. And it was fucking awesome. It was great. Can you explain this to me? Is this wrapped up in the like 30 second partial videos of Beyonce that I saw throughout like the last five months on the leftovers so uh, before each leftover episode the leftovers episode they had a single song from the beyonce miss carter tour but was it the whole song it wasn't like the whole song was it no no it was usually the whole song huh okay it's like three to four minutes 
uh, and it was from the Miss Carter tour. Her and Jay-Z both had just wrapped up worldwide tours, and then they mm-hmm. decided to go on tour again, only this time is going to be them together. Yeah. Um, I thought it was fucking awesome. And the thing that's... So I'm a huge Jay-Z fan. I know you're a huge Jay-Z fan. I'm a pretty big Beyonce fan. I know you don't probably give a shit. No, I heard the album that she released recently, um, where it's just, you know, her kind of doing what she did, mm-hmm. fuck the labels. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and it was all visual in nature, and this tour is very visual. The thing that surprised me mm-hmm. is when Jay-Z was on, because they kind of, number one, I've forgotten how many fucking collaborations they've done in the last 10 years. Like, <laughs> way more than I would have thought that they've actually yeah. been on each other's tracks. And they kind of do, like, they open up with the, you know, Bonnie and Clyde's and stuff and the upgrade you to shit that you'd expect. Uh, and then, you know, Beyonce kind of takes it for, like, 20 minutes or so. And then Jay-Z comes. They'll do another collaboration as a way to kind of, like, the DJs mixing two tracks together to okay. fade back into Jay-Z. And they kind of do that all night long. What really surprised me is when Jay-Z was on, I found myself start playing with my phone. Because <laughs> 100% of what I was getting from Jay-Z was through my ears. Like, he was just really just standing there. And as it, it's, it's a single yeah. guy standing in different outfits, doing different hand gestures, but that's it. Yeah, that sounds like a rap concert to me, sure. Beyonce's on, the fucking phone dropped, and I just mesmerized because the audio-video assault and all the dancing and choreography and the fact that she can just, like, Tina Turner-esque do this shit while she's belting out tunes without lip-syncing Yeah, is amazing. The fact that she looks like Beyonce as well. That doesn't hurt. Uh, she's a very sexy woman. She knows how to move the body. But I'm just saying, like, she does really intense. She's she's giving you a show. Yeah. Whereas Jay-Z is giving you a song. Yeah, there's yeah. very few people that can do that choreography and not lip sync. Like, you're not getting that yeah. from the Britney Spears and the, mm-hmm. I don't know, Katy Perry's of the world. Um, but it's really good. Very. If you got HBO Go, you can watch the whole damn thing and really glorious high def uh it's a great way to spend two and a half hours if you are at all inclined to to listen to their music i am i'll check it out the other thing you turned me on to a documentary a couple days ago and i watched it last night yep uh what's it's called in my house no it's not called in my house uh we're gonna have to look this thing up how i live my life or something like that the house i live in the house i live in that's what it is um it's by a guy I'd never heard of, but he's done a couple other uh, documentary films. It has a shit ton of David Simon in it. Yep. Who everyone knows is the creator of The Wire. The creator of The Wire, The Corner. He's um, the, the, both the book and the series. Um, and I just, like, I thought I was fairly educated about the war on drugs because obviously I pontificated about it at length. But mm-hmm. this thing is a, a very tight two-hour documentary. It's not sensational. It's very calmly and rationally from all sides, from the police side, from the judicial side, from the government side, from the street-level mm-hmm. side, black, white, poor, rich, uh, prison industrial complex. It just lays out why the war on drugs is eating away at our country. Sure. And it's interesting because, you know, good documentaries can really, you know, make people sit up and take notice. Like, look what Blackfish has done to uh, SeaWorld. Sure. Like, SeaWorld is dying 
because they have this massive PR problem because someone made a documentary that clearly logically lays out what what you know kind of brutal inhuman treatment that's being perpetuated on an intelligent animal. Yeah, and everybody gets up in arms about it. Blackfish, their page on Facebook has millions and millions of hits. I remember when I watched it the first time last year. I posted on Facebook. I had a dozen of my friends and family like, "Yes, I saw that. No, oh, it's terrible," and all this. Uh, the house that I live in has currently 20,000 likes on Facebook. <laughs> and yep. when you want to talk about the oppression of intelligent beings, you might want to start with your fellow human ones. Yeah, I it's think that's a good place to start. possible to watch this show and come away thinking that justice is being done in any of these communities that, and, 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 and you know, it starts off, you think it's going to be like, oh yeah, it's another one of these things about the black community and all the shit that's going on there. Mm. But halfway through the movie, they pivot into like how really meth and what it's doing to the poor white communities is the exact same deal. And now people are just pissed because it's happening to the white people. Oh my God, it's happening to the white people. But they're not. No one You're really right. no is one's, pissed no one's because pissed. it's happening to the poor, the white, poor people. white people. Yep. Like there's this one really moving story of this guy who's he's put away in life in prison mm-hmm. because he was arrested with five grams of methamphetamine. Which, um, when you when you're talking about like mandatory sentencing stuff, yes, that's where this stuff gets really nasty because uh, take take like crack and cocaine for instance. Right. Um, crack is a form of cocaine uh, that is mandatorily sentenced at a hundred and fifty times. It's a hundred times. A hundred times the rate that cocaine is. So sure. basically, meaning if you have five grams of cocaine in your pocket. That is equivalent to 500 grams of this other, uh, of crack. And the judge I thought was brilliant because I didn't know. But crack cocaine, he's like, do you know what the difference in crack cocaine and powder cocaine is? They mix it with baking soda and water and they cook it. Yeah. There is no, it's actually actually less pure than powder cocaine. But, But here's the reason why it's such a problem. It's because primarily the black community, the poor black community was the, were the ones using crack cocaine whereas the wall street crowds were using cocaine right and so the sentencing is entirely unfair and and ends up with the vast majority of people affected by it being poor black people you know and the other thing is that i thought that the movie did really well is they show just decades of politicians saying the same goddamn thing mm-hmm. about getting tough on criminals and taking the war yeah. to the streets about putting away the dealers and the pushers and the people who are killing our children uh-huh. and then showing the stats on drug use and it has not changed yeah. like a trillion dollars has been spent and our incarceration rates it, highest think about this we are the highest currently in the world. Yep. Right? There is no other country with more people incarcerated per capita than us. Not Saudi Arabia. Not China. Not China. Not, not North Korea. Right? We rule Insane. the world. Insane. Now think about this in a historical context. This is the most imprisoning country in the history of the world. Right. Never has there been more people in a country, in, a, in an empire, in prison than we have right now. And there's, you know, it's like one of those things where I just didn't know what to do. Like, I've already kind of worked up about the war on drugs. I think everyone knows. Sure. But, like, watching yeah. this thing was just a gut punch, but also kind of hopeful. 
because you see uh-huh. how many prison administrators, how many law enforcement officers, how many judges, how many politicians are finally starting to like I don't care if this costs me my career or costs mm-hmm. me my election or whatever. I cannot sit and say we need tougher punishments on criminals in fact we need to start rolling this shit back yeah it's hopeful but it's also scary because the end of that near the end of that documentary they show you know the prison industry Mm -hmm. and that is the scary part because now you're talking about big business with with political lobbying going on and tons of money to spend to keep this industry alive Right. Keep these laws from changing. That's the scary part. And there's whole towns where your the the local factory, the local manufacturing base, the local job creator is a Mm -hmm. huge prison. Look at Detroit. Detroit's a perfect example of this. You lose the steel and car industries. Right. And boom, your whole city. It doesn't matter how big the city is. Your whole city's going under. And a lot of these small towns and even bigger towns are supported entirely by the prison there. And when someone wants to close them down, it's like this big thing. And and when you build— And people actively protest not to close down the prison. It'll put us out of jobs. And when you build—like one guy, one prison administrator made a brilliant point. When you build a facility with 25,000 beds, you must fill that. Yeah, fill them. Or you, you know, you've you've sold this bill of goods to the community that you know we'll buy the land and you lease it and we'll all get rich. Well, if those beds don't get filled, and some of the stuff that like the CCA, if you look at their marketing materials, they like put as a bullet point like why you should invest in CCA. Well, mm-hmm. they put it right there. America has the highest rate of incarceration. We have the highest rate of recidivism, <laughs> and it's like a marketing point. We put more people in prison it's, and we do such a shitty job training them to equip them for life on the outside world that they're going to be right back in. So this is the safest investment you can make. It's fucked up. It's and, crazy. But the, the thing is they they take none of the risk, right? Let's say, you know, the the prison population dries up. We pass some crazy law that uh, – or, or we repeal some crazy laws that cause less people to go to prison. Now that population's drying up. Well, they've just leased the land. They haven't built the buildings. They haven't put all that infrastructure in place. Now those towns are stuck with these massive buildings and infrastructures that they have no use for if right. the prison goes away. So it, it's 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 a perpetu- doubly, self-perpetuating thing. Yeah. The thing I really like about this documentary is that it's not sensationalist, right? I, a lot, I've seen a lot of these things where they'll take one or two people and they'll follow their stories and they'll say – how unjust it is that they got arrested for having uh, cocaine in their car or something. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really the unjust part, right? It's it's the sentencing part. It's it's all of these things. They they focus on the wrong things and they try to sensationalize the story of a couple of people. Mm-hmm. Here, I like how they just take the stories of the people. They present right. them in context with what's going on right. in in the industry and the culture, and they don't try to like make a huge deal out of just these two stories and no. say this is how everything is no they take you through it and they show you logically why these things are a problem and he goes all over the country and shows like you know what and and the other thing that he makes i think a really good point and david simon does too is just what this does to united states police force oh yeah yeah like just how <laughs> this is destroying entire generations of cops and making mm-hmm. them incapable like he said it's like you got a whole police force that can't solve fucking crimes yeah because the reward is to go out and you know bust low-level street stuff get a whole bunch of overtime filling out paperwork taking guys to prison you know you solve a rape that takes weeks and you might clear one case 
Sure. And, and you're not getting the overtime. Yeah. You, you look at the sergeants, the sergeants are the guys making 60 arrests a week versus the guy who's yeah. actually doing something that's helping the society. It's, it's great. And like I said, I feel like I might be – the reaction I had to it is one of sadness and anger, mm-hmm. but it's not a sad or angry film. It's very no, matter of fact, and it's just it's kind of like you know it's it's a very stop provoking. Yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, it's like the similar feeling I get when I watch Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, this is and only this is actually happening, and it's all real life. I encourage anybody that's into the wire uh, or is curious about how we can make our country better uh, is to check out the house I live in. I'll put the Facebook page. You can get it for free on Netflix. It's available just about in every damn where mm-hmm. that stream shit. Uh, so check it out. Um, that's all I got. You got anything you want to say? No, I think I'm good. All right. If you'd like to send us feedback on this podcast, you can do so at TV at baldmove.com. Um, and, uh, and I, we'll probably be back in a week or two, mm-hmm. whenever there's news or something to talk about. All right. See we'll you see you then. <laughs>